0: Good morning. My name is Kevin, and I am excited to be with you this morning. As some of you may know, uh, my wife is pregnant, and we're expecting our sixth child next month. Uh, yeah, we can say amen to that for her. Yes, yeah, she, She's like, oh, please don't draw attention to me. Uh, people often ask, hey, um, how do you do it? You got so many kids. How, how do you do it? I'm, Paige and I are always like, oh, we're not doing it. Like, we, we, we're, we're barely making it. I mean, unfortunately, just having a lot of kids doesn't make you a good parent. In fact, it's kind of just the opposite. If you are a parent, if you are a parent, you know that there's maybe nothing in life that makes you more aware of your sin and your weakness than pa- being a parent, right? I mean, parenting is like someone holding a mirror in your face every day and showing you your weakness and your sin, I want to start today by asking you a question. Do you, feel, do you ever feel weighed down by your sin? Do you ever feel weighed down by your sin or your weakness? I'll confess, this has been a challenge uh, and a struggle for me most of my walk with God. It didn't start out that way. Um, when I first came to Christ, I, I felt light and free. But over the years, I have developed what pastor and author Tim Keller calls is the elder brother syndrome. In his book, The Prodigal God, Keller says that elder brothers try to earn their righteousness through their moral performance and their personal achievements. They are good people because they are good people, or so they think. And there are many problems with this, right? But one of the major problems is that at any time an elder brother sins or falls short or experiences weakness or failure, they feel a great sense of shame and condemnation because their righteousness and their justification is based on themselves and on their moral performance. It's based on them being a good person. Well, today we're going to be reminded that as Christians, our righteousness and justification is in Jesus alone. And in light of that, We're going to look at how we can respond to our sin, respond to our weakness with worship. Uh, As a church family, you know, we've been making our way through the Bible uh, this year. And while we still have several weeks of reading to do in the Old Testament, today we're actually going to look at one of the last moments in the story of the Israelite people and their journey with God. It's towards the end of the... Uh, the The Old Testament story. It's found in Nehemiah chapter nine. If you have your Bibles, or you want to pull up on your app, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter nine. Now, the second half of our message, we're going to be in Romans chapter seven and eight. But before we dive into God's Word, uh, let's just pause briefly and pray together. Would you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, that you demonstrated your love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I'm so thankful that our story is different than the Israelite story. And so God, as we open up Nehemiah 9 and Romans 7 and Romans 8, 8, I just ask God, would your word be living and active here this morning? Would you pour out your spirit on us, Lord? And would you open the eyes of our hearts? And would you help us to see through your word, through the story of the gospel, love of Jesus, that you are a glorious father. You are a glorious father. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, yes, can I get an A? That's what I'm talking about, raise them right. Uh, The book of Nehemiah picks up the story, the book of Nehemiah picks up the story Uh, of the Israelites about 50 years after they had been carried off uh, into exile by the Babylonians. Remember this? Okay, so God allows the uh, Assyrians to invade the northern kingdom and they destroy it and they carry most of the northern Israelites off into exile. Then a little bit later, uh, God allows the Babylonians to invade the southern kingdom, which is where Jerusalem was, and they destroy Jerusalem and they destroy Jerusalem's walls and they carry most of the Israelites into exile. Well, several decades later, God raises up three different leaders that will lead a portion of the Israelites back to Jerusalem. The first guy is named Zerubbabel. He he and a group of Israelites return to Jerusalem uh, first, and they rebuild the temple that Solomon built and that the Babylonians had destroyed. The next guy is a guy named Ezra, and Ezra leads the next wave of Israelites, and he focuses on rebuilding the community of people and specifically around God's law and God's commands. Then God raises up the third and final leader, Nehemiah, and he he leads the third wave of Israelites back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, if you've been around church for a while, he's well known for rebuilding Jerusalem's walls. Now, there's obviously a lot in this story that we could cover, but today we're going to zero in on what happens after Nehemiah successfully rebuilds the wall. This is when Ezra and Nehemiah are going to partner together, and they're going to try to help the people recommit to being faithful and obedient to God. Let's pick the story up in Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, for this first portion of the story, we're not going to have any passages on the screen. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can just follow along. And if not, just listen as I read out loud. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. So, Ezra and Nehemiah gather the Israelites together for a festival. It's kind of like a a multi day church service. And they're fasting and they're praying and they're wearing sackcloth and putting ashes, uh, putting dust on their heads. Now, what's that about? These are really important details to the story. The sackcloth and the ashes represent or were symbols of shame and mourning, they were ashamed. They were ashamed of what? They were ashamed of their sin. They were mourning over their disobedience. They were confessing and crying out to the Lord with loud voices. And it says they were reading the law of the Lord uh, or the Torah. It says for a quarter of the day. That's three hours. That's a three-hour sermon. Then it says they were confessing their sin and worshiping for another three hours. This is a six-hour church service. Can I get an amen? Who wants to go till dinner time? Come on. You're all like, oh, no, please don't, Kevin but this is not a pretty scene. There are tears and cries. There's shame and there's mourning because as a community, they are deeply convicted about their sin and disobedience. And in the rest of chapter nine, we actually get to read their prayer of confession. And in it, they simply retell their story. Back to God. They basically give a summary of the Old Testament story. Now, I'm going to read just a few more portions of it. I'm going to highlight a few key parts. Let's pick it up in chapter uh, chapter 9, verse 5, the second half of verse 5. Blessed be your glorious name, they praise him. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens even the highest heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. They basically just summarize the creation account. Verse 7, you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of, out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites. And you have kept your promise because you are righteous. So God makes a covenant to Abraham. And they're, they're recalling this promise that God made to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham and his families. And so the rest of the Old Testament story is basically the story between God and his journey with Abraham's descendants, Abraham's family, the Israelites. Let's pick it up in verse nine. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, God, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty warriors. By day, you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. And so they're recounting and praising God for delivering the Israelites out of Egypt. God had called Charlton Heston to lead them and to free them. Now, if you're under the age of 30, you have no idea why that was funny to the rest of us. <laughs> Moses leads them out of Egypt, right? That was such a good movie. And the next line in this prayer is really important. Here's what they say. Verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. I want to think about this verse for a moment. This is such a critical moment in the story of the Israelites and their journey with God. And the truth is, this is a critical moment in our story and our journey with God as well. I want to highlight three key words here. The words just, right, and good. Just, right, and good. See, these three words tell us why the Israelites were ashamed and mourning and crying out and confessing in loud voices for six hours. These three words tell us why they were wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. See, at Mount Sinai, God gave Moses and the Israelites the Ten Commandments, the law, What are God's laws? What are God's commands? And why are they just and right and good? Well, think about a basic contract, if you will. God's commandments or God's law are the terms of the contract. They define the relationship. And as the author and creator of life, God has all authority to do just that. He has the wisdom and the authority to define the rules of life. And and God's commands and laws define what is right and what is just and what is good. Now, for the sake of time and simplicity, let's just take one commandment, do not murder. Think about this. This one command has been, for the most part, throughout human history, universally accepted as right and just and good. There's something in us that knows murder is not right and it's not good. It's unjust. And so God gave the Israelites these commands and laws to show them how to be right and good, what was just. And the commands if you will, were their path or their guidelines or their instructions, their map to follow if they wanted to be righteous and good, just as God was righteous and good. But they did not follow the map very well. They didn't follow the instructions. Let's go back to the prayer. Verse 16, but they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked and they did not obey your commands. They're saying, listen, we acknowledge, we recognize, we see, and we understand that our ancestors were rebellious and and they were disobedient. And we agree they were arrogant and and stiff-necked. And as they continue in their prayer, they recount how God uh, led them into the promised land. And there was a period where they were faithful and they were obedient. And because of their obedience, God gave them a season of fruitfulness and a season of abundance and a season of rest. But then in verse 28, they continue in the prayer. But as soon as they were at rest, as soon as our ancestors were at rest in the promised land, they did again what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion, you delivered them. I love this phrase, time after time. You see this pattern, kind of, of the Old Testament, the story of the Israelites and their relationship with God? God, you have been righteous and good. You are gracious and compassionate. You're a merciful God, but we have been unrighteous and we are evil. God, you did all of this good for us, but we have rebelled against you. And yet time after time, you kept delivering us and helping us. And so as they recount their history and their relationship with God, they come to one conclusion, verse 37, we are in great distress. <laughs> and it's at this point where they want to do something different. They want to be They want a different story for themselves, and they want to follow God's law, and they want to obey God's commands. And so what do they do? Well, if you keep reading, in chapter 10, they recommit themselves to God. They say, we're going to be faithful to you. They renew their vows and their covenants. Ezra and Nehemiah's goal was uh, was to renew their faithfulness to God. They're going to recommit to being righteous and good, and they're so confident. And they're so hopeful that they're going to carry it out that they, if you read in chapter 10, they give a list of all the ways they're going to obey God. They say, God, we're going to obey you this way. 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 And as a reader, you're led to think, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this group of Israelites is going to do what all generations time after time before them have failed to do. Maybe they're going to be good and righteous and follow God's decrees and his laws and his commands. But guess what happens? Spoiler alert. Sometime later, Nehemiah tours the city, and once again, he sees that they are being disobedient to God's laws and commands, and once again, they fail to be faithful to God, that despite their best intentions, they fail to be righteous and good. And the book of Nehemiah ends with Nehemiah angry and lashing out at the people, and he basically tells God, well, I tried my best. That's how it ends. It's basically how the Old Testament ends. There are two things I want us to see about the Israelite story in the Old Testament and and these Israelites here in Nehemiah. First is this, in spite of their best intentions to be and do good, to follow God's law, they ultimately sinned and could not carry it out. And you're probably thinking, yes, Kevin, that's kind of obvious, so you kind of belabored the point. But that's exactly the point. That's God's point in the Old Testament. He belabors it over and over and over again. Generation after generation, time after time, God was making it clear that they were just unable to follow His commands and live up to His law. And the second thing I want us to see about the Old Testament story, about the Israelites here in Nehemiah, is that their story is our story. Their problem is our problem. It's called the human condition. We want to obey God's law. We want to be good. But the bad news is we just can't carry it out. And this very issue is at the heart of the Bible. It's at the heart of Christianity. It's at the heart of the gospel of Jesus. That's why you got to grasp this. In Romans chapter seven, the apostle Paul says this. He says, for I know that that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. I love this line. Paul says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good summary of my life and my relationship with the Lord. My guess is you probably agree. Just like the Israelites, just like Paul, we have the desire to do what is good. We have the best of intentions, but we can't seem to carry it out. We want to be patient, but we end up being impatient. We want to be kind, but we end up being rude. We don't want to get angry, but we get angry. We want to be gentle, but we end up being harsh. We want to have an unselfish attitude, want to put others first, but we end up being selfish putting ourselves first. Well, why why can't, what's our problem? What's wrong? Paul says, we have a sinful nature. It's coming from the inside. He goes on in Romans chapter 7, verse 21. He says, so I find this law at work, although I want to do do good, evil is right there with me. I love this. For in my inner being, he says, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Paul says in verse 22, I delight in God's law. I think for the most part, the Israelites delighted in God's law. That wasn't their problem, so to speak. I think that most of us delight in God's law. I think that most people today, Christian or non-Christian, actually delight in God's law. Think about this with me. Think about the Ten Commandments. I think most people throughout the world today would say that it's morally wrong to lie, that it's morally wrong to steal, that it's not right to murder, that committing adultery is hurtful, that dishonoring your parents isn't a good moral thing to do. And of course, in the New Testament, Jesus takes the moral bar, and in the Sermon on the Mount, He raises it up even higher than all of these. I recently heard a, uh, about an experiment. I took a group of young people who have, uh, were unchurched and had never heard the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount. And so they had them read the Sermon on the Mount. And this was the first time that they had ever read it or been exposed to it. And overwhelmingly, their response was basically the same. They were angry and called it silly. Here's what they said. Don't get angry. Don't have a lustful thought. Don't worry. Don't judge. Love your enemies. Who in the world can live like this? They said. See, those of us who've been in church for so long, we hear those messages, I think we can sometimes become numb to how impossible those standards are. I heard a pastor recently say that a sober and fresh reading of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount should leave the reader begging God for mercy because the reader knows if read accurately, you know there's no way in and of your strength you could possibly live out those standards. And so you're left with one conclusion. I am a wretched sinner. But that's exactly how Paul felt. Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Paul looked at his sin and he said this, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Do you ever feel that way? I do. And this is what the Israelites felt over and over and over again. They would see their sin. They would see how wretched they were. And they would cry out to God, rescue us, save us, have mercy on us. And it was a cry of fear, a cry of uncertainty. This is a good verse that summarizes not only the Israelites in Nehemiah, but it really summarizes the whole Israelite story, the whole Old Testament. This is the question that hangs over the entire Old Testament. Who will rescue us from sin and death? Who And the the bad news is the Old Testament ends with no one answering that question. The question goes unanswered. But this is where our story takes such a different turn. This is where our story is radically different from their story. Paul goes on and he gives the answer. We have the answer. Romans seven twenty-five. thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have a deliverer. We have one who's rescued us. His name is Jesus. And then Paul does something here in Romans that I'm not sure that many of us are very good at doing on a regular basis. I know I'm not. Paul sees his sin and he acknowledges that he's a wretched man, but then he allows his wretchedness to lead him to worship. Paul's reflex response is to go from sin to thanksgiving. Wouldn't it be great if we could do that? I mean, on a daily, weekly basis, that the moment you see and realize or the moment you experience your sin or the consequences of your sin throughout your day, that the very next breath, the very next thought that comes to your mind, that the very next words out of your mouth are, thanks be to God. The Israelites saw their sin and they were filled with shame. Paul sees his sin and he worships Jesus. Jesus. How in the world does Paul do that? How does he get there? The answer, I think the secret is in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. See, this is the difference. We are no longer condemned. Those who are in Christ Jesus, those who put their faith and trust in Christ are no longer condemned. What's condemnation? One biblical commentator defines it this way. Condemnation includes both the idea of rendering a verdict of guilt and the punishment that follows. So on one hand, condemnation is when you stand before the judge and he declares or pronounces you as guilty of breaking the law. And condemnation is also the punishment that comes with or that bring that your guilt brings with it. Now, what were the Israelites guilty of? Think back to Mount Sinai, Nehemiah 9.13. Let's look at it again. See, they were guilty of not just breaking the law or disobeying God's commands. They were guilty of not being just and right and good. That was their problem. And that's your nice problem too. Romans 2:13 says it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. It is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. The laws and commands of God are a path to being righteous and good. And the New Testament tells us that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and we will be judged as to whether or not we kept God's law, whether or not we were right and good. And each of us will receive from God a verdict, either guilty or innocent. And here is the bad news. Just like the Israelites, we're all guilty. And At this point, you're thinking, I think I could have found something more life-giving to do than come to church on this morning. You're like, man, where is this? Kevin, that's bad news. I know, but here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus left heaven and he came to earth and he lived an innocent, sinless life and he always obeyed his father. And Jesus is the only person in human history to have ever fulfilled the requirements of the law and obey all God's commands. Jesus is the only man who was ever truly righteous and truly good. And in the most remarkable act of love in human history, the innocent one stepped into the courtroom, if you will, and he stood before the judge on our behalf, and he willingly volunteers to take our guilty verdict and to suffer the punishment that we deserve. And so what do we do now? What do we do now? I want you to imagine you're sitting in the back of a courtroom You see some people in the courtroom and you see the judge on the bench and all of a sudden your name is called and you stand up and you start making your way to the bench and you know you're about ready to be judged as to whether or not you've been righteous and good in that moment you know what you're feeling you're feeling what the israelites were feeling in nehemiah 9. you're in great distress because you know you have acted wickedly and evil you know that there's nothing you are a wretched person there's nothing there's no way you've kept that law and obeyed that command. But then, as you're waking, making your way up to the bench, you see a man into the courtroom, and it's Jesus. And he looks at you, and he puts his hand out, and then he steps into your place. And he looks at the judge, and he says, uh, Kevin, uh, give me his verdict. I'll take his guilty verdict, and I'll take his punishment. And you watch as they cuff Jesus, the innocent one, and they lead him out of the courtroom to take your punishment, and you're left standing in the courtroom. What do you do? What do you do? The answer to this question is at the heart of God's plan for your life and mine. What do you do when you see Jesus take your punishment and your guilty verdict for you? Will you stand there filled with deep gratitude and overwhelming love in all of what Jesus has just done for you, will you put your whole, your faith and trust in him and will you worship him and follow him all the days of your life? That's what it means to be a Christian. When you see what he has done for you and you say, I want to put my faith in him, Galatians 2.16 says this. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, by obeying the law, by obeying the commands, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. How are we justified? By faith, not by works of the law, because because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one. No one is declared righteous according to the law except for Jesus, and we, when we put your faith in Christ, you get that innocent verdict. For those who put their faith and trust in Christ, those who by faith have received the forgiveness and righteousness of God through Jesus Christ, the good news is the trial is over. The trial is over. The courtroom is closed. You are free to leave. You are good. Pastor and author Tim Keller says that for those of us who have not grasped this reality, every single day, we end up putting ourselves back in the courtroom. And every day we put ourselves back on trial as spouses, as parents, in the workplace, as friends, in our relationship with God. Everything we do every day is either providing evidence for the prosecution or evidence for the defense. And if we're honest, it's a pretty miserable, hopeless way to live. But if you're a Christ follower, you're not on trial anymore. The trial is over and you're free and the gospel takes it a step further. You're not just free from condemnation. You've been adopted by the judge himself as a son and daughter. And so now God is your father. The judge is your father. And so now you stand there and in Romans eight 15, we're told that the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship and by him, we cry Abba, Father. That's our cry. That's our cry. Our cry is Abba, Father. The Israelites cried out in fear, have mercy on us. We repent. We cry out because of Jesus, Abba, Father. And I love this phrase phrase here, so that you live in fear again. I like how the ESV translates this. Look at this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. I like that. Fall back into fear. Fear of what? It's fear of condemnation. It's fear of being guilty and being punished. But 1 John tells us that perfect love drives out all fear. We have no reason. For those who are in Christ, you have no reason of being afraid of being punished by God. You don't have to be afraid anymore. To fall back into fear is to fall back into this previous way of relating to God before you were forgiven and declared righteous in God's sight. And as Christ followers, we want to keep the law and obey the commandments of God. But we have something the, the Old Testament Israelites didn't have. We have the spirit of Jesus. We have new hearts. We have the word of God. We have the church of God. And what does it mean to have a new heart? It means to have a new motivation. Our motivation now is not to try to gain God's acceptance and to gain righteousness. No, because we're accepted by God, because we've been given forgiveness and righteousness, we obey out of love and gratitude. Think about it like this. It's like the first time when you fall in love with your spouse. You fall in love with someone and you your love for them is so clear, it's so evident, it's so real. It's on the forefront of your mind. It just consumes your life. It's the biggest thing in your life. You're just you're just in love with this person and you basically say to them, "Your wish is my command." Your wish is my command. Now, this is not the 30 years later, your wish is my command in sarcasm. No, no. This is the your wish is my command out of sincerity, out of love, out of thankfulness for this loving relationship you say your wish is my command. I will obey your commands, God. I want to obey your commands because of what you've done for me as an expression of my gratitude, as a, out of thanksgiving and love for seeing what Jesus did for you in the courtroom. You go, oh goodness, what? how can I obey you? How can I offer my life to you? I want to do it through, through loving obedience, through following you, through serving you, through worshiping you. Keller says, do you realize that only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? No, other religion or philosophy in life does that. Only in Christianity does the verdict lead to the performance. And the verdict is this, that Jesus earned righteousness through his perfect moral performance, and Jesus is the only one who achieved righteousness, and he's the only one who's ever been truly good. And as Christians, the good news is that our faith is not in our performance. Our faith is not in our faithfulness. Our faith is in his goodness, in his faithfulness, and in his performance, not ours. And that's why we worship him, and that's why we give thanks. And because of what Jesus has done for us, we try our best to obey his commands as an expression of gratitude and out of love. But when we do sin, like Paul, we can actually respond with worship. I mean, we want to take sin seriously and try to get it out of our life, but it doesn't lead to shame and condemnation. And so the good news about the sin and weakness in your life is that if you're a Christian, when you see your sin because of Jesus, you can cry out, Abba, Father, with thanksgiving and praise. This week, This month, let me remind you, this this is the new way a Christian reacts and relates to the sin and failure and condemnation in their life. I mean, a a sin and failure in their life. We don't respond with shame and condemnation. We actually respond with worship. We cry out, Abba, Father, with thanksgiving and praise. So I'm going to leave you with two images. The first is Charlie Brown. (laughs) Good old Charlie Brown. I'll confess, this is how I often respond to the sin and weakness in my life. I often, in my own relationship with God, I I feel this sense of shame and condemnation. And the truth is, it's because I've developed this elder brother syndrome, where I've mistakenly, I think, from the enemy who deceives us, have developed this pattern of thinking that my righteousness and my acceptance before God is based on my moral performance. I repent. Maybe you're there, too. Maybe you're ready to say, no, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We can cry out, Abba, Father. And if you don't have Christ in your life, you see this image? If you don't have Christ in your life, if you don't have the good news, if you've not received the forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ, the truth is this is how you should respond to your sin. This is exactly what the Israelites looked like in Nehemiah 9 because they were feeling the enormous weight and burden that they were unrighteous and and not good and not justified before God. See, those who don't have Christ, this is the appropriate response because we all will stand before God one day. And for those who have not put their faith and trust in Christ, we're told shame and condemnation and punishment for a guilty verdict is what's to come. But the good news is, for those of us who put our faith and trust in Christ, for those of us who have stood or sat in the back of the courtroom and saw Jesus come into our lives and saw Jesus take all of our guilty verdict and take our punishment, and we've seen by faith you've said, yes, Jesus, I want the forgiveness. I want the righteousness. Thank you for your love. Then we respond to our sin like this. Worship. Worship. So maybe you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ. Maybe you've never received by faith the forgiveness and righteousness of Christ. Here's my question for you. If this story is true, and if Jesus has, in fact, loved you in this way, why wouldn't you want to offer your life to someone who's done that for you? Why wouldn't you want to worship and say, my life is yours. My heart is yours. I will follow you. I'll obey you. I'll give my life to you. I'll lay down my life and follow you, Jesus. For the rest of us, let's be individuals. Let's be sons and daughters of God. Let's be husbands and wives. Let's be parents who in our homes, in, in this church family, let's be a church family who says, there is no shame or condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And let's be a church family who cries out. Let's be, let the cry of your heart, the cry of your home, the cry of this church be Abba Father with thanksgiving and praise because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's stand now, and we're going to worship together right now. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that in Christ Jesus, we have been set free from that courtroom and that the trial is over, and we've been adopted as your sons and daughters. And God, I just pray that by your spirit and by your grace and through your power, that we would be a church family who cries, Abba, Father. We're going to do that right now, Jesus. We're going to praise you. In your name, amen.